So am I a Scot or am I British? Well, if you ask a Texan whether he's a Texan or an American, then he's probably going to say both. But uh, quite a lot of people, especially my fellow Scots, would deny me the right to be both Scottish and British. Now this is unusual because um, you don't really find that in most other places. Um, nobody who is a, is a German is, is not entitled to be a Saxon. Um, you can be a Florentine and an Italian. But there's something particularly poisonous in Scotland about claiming to be British um, if you're also an ethnic Scot. Now, there's no great mystery as to why that's the case, and it's because the issue of whether Scotland has been an independent country has been live, especially for the last 15, 20 years. It's been, it's been discussed for uh, ever since the Act of Union in 1707. But it's been, uh, it's been a, an itch that some people can't leave alone, and uh, there's been a resulting scab, I think, since the middle of the 1970s. Um, I'm old enough to remember when the Scottish National Party produced an advertisement for, uh, uh, partly for membership and partly for uh, election campaigning. And it was, it's Scotland's oil. Now, even as a boy in the 1970s, as a, as a young child, I could see there was something jarring, something inapt, something slightly um, beneath one's dignity to predicate a political claim on something as crass and as obvious as grabbing natural resource. Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, I think in 1991, and uh, there was an attempt made to claim that this was uh, an exercise in Iraqi dignity and sovereignty, but I think everyone knew it was an exercise in grabbing the Karag oil fields and, uh, and the rest of, of the Kuwaiti uh, natural mineral endowment. For the Scottish National Party to stick a claim to independence based on something as obvious as splitting oil five million ways rather than 60 million ways struck me even as a child as to be uh, something, if not beneath contempt, certainly uh, nothing to be particularly proud of. But anyway, here we are, it's 2020. Six years on from the Scottish National Party and the broader Yes movement losing the independence referendum when they seemed sure they would win, um, and yet it doesn't stop. We were told it was once in a generation, but it seems that the generation was fruit flies. Now, I appreciate that by being this blunt as to my agenda this early on, probably quite a lot of you have turned off already. But I think there's, uh, there's little to be gained from beating around the bush because we've tried to be moderate and temperate and it's got us nowhere. The Scottish independence movement, the separatists, which irritates them if you refer to them as separatists, but the Scottish independence movement is separatist. There is a British nation. Alex Salmond says that on occasion he feels himself to be British. The British ethnic identity is real and vibrant. It's ancient. It's older than most of the states that exist in the world. We forget that in 1603, a Scottish king became the King of Great Britain. And uh, we forget that in 1707, the English Parliament ceased to exist, as did the Scottish Parliament. And the Westminster Parliament existed for the first time. The Act of Union telling us that the two countries were joined together forever. So we forget some of these obvious things and uh, we fall out over it. So I think it's important maybe to go back and think more broadly, not only about Scotland, but also about politics and how we got to where we are and what politics can and can't do. Now, in the modern world, politics is often sewers. Politics is, is tedious, it's boring. It's not the family, it's not the individual and their achievements. Um, it's about trying to get the rubbish off the streets 
and trying to care for the poor and the dispossessed and the elderly and the frail in the best and most economical manner possible. Um, it's technical questions. There are a few good reasons why most of the decisions that are made in a polity, uh, a few good reasons why they can't be made by civil servants. If you could trust the civil service to work diligently without ministerial and parliamentary oversight, probably they could do most of the things that are required to be done, because most of them are technical questions. Politics in the modern world, as say, is mainly about the mundane things. It's fixing holes in the road. It's not about great issues of identity. However, politics is in part about issues of identity. Michael Ignatiev wrote a very good book on blood and belonging. And he talked about the collapse of the former Yugoslavia and what happened when Tito died and the Serbs and the Croats uh, and others had politicised identities. Because up until that point, they were compelled to act as if they were Yugoslavs, regardless of whether they thought they were. Once Tito was dead, and once the state... Now, this is the really interesting point. Ignatiev is a clever guy. He's written very convincingly on complex issues, like, for example, Scottish Enlightenment philosophy. And Ignatiev makes a telling point about what happened in Yugoslavia. He says, people think that ethnicity was politicised, and then the state collapsed because of it. That's not actually what happened. What happened was the state collapsed, and then people were left thinking... Who can I trust? Who will defend me when nobody else will? And that question was answered by um, an appeal to an old ethnic identity. I'm a Croat, I'm a Serb, I'm a Muslim, and therefore these people will defend me. So sometimes politics is about identity. Sometimes, Churchill, of course, famously said to motivate the cabinet, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll attempt to say it in the manner which he might have said it. He said... If the history of this island race is to end now, then let it end with the last one of us on the ground choking on his own blood. Now, that appeal, and even after all this time, to any Brit, to any ethnic Brit, it strikes right to the core. That appeal was an appeal to the irrational. And the reason why the irrational can be the rational was explained by Steven Pinker in his book, How the Mind Works. There's a kind of deep rationality and irrationality. If you're the kind of person or the kind of nation that in the right circumstances will not reckon your losses, then you will live free. Because those who are truly fascistic, those who are wedded to darkness, for want of a better expression, those who represent everything which is ungodly and unholy and inhuman, they will recognise that while you might not be like them, you're not dark, you're not nihilistic, you will take them into hell if necessary. So nations sometimes have to appeal to that activism, that fundamental identity. And of course, the Scots have a great deal of that. Um, it's not our national motto, but it's thought to be our national motto. It, it's our de facto national motto. Nemo impuni lacessit. None may strike us with impunity. The old British Army Infantry Training pamphlet, I think I recall correctly, says that uh, the bagpipes must not be used with Scottish troops in the attack because it just causes a complete loss of discipline. Everyone goes crazy and there's no command and control. So nations um, are imagined communities and nation states are political orders that are underpinned by that kind of sentiment. Um, but most of the time when existential threats aren't in play, 
when people aren't trying to enslave you, as the Germans were in 1939. In most circumstances, politics is about sewers. It's about holes in the road. It's about schools and how best to cause kids to be able to read and reason and write. And these are technical questions. They're not fundamentally political questions. They're not ideological questions. They're administrative and bureaucratic questions. So, the first thing I think we have to think about when we consider Scottish independence is, is it the case that we're living in existentially challenging times such that we have to look and recognise that only other Scots can be trusted. And the second question we have to ask ourselves is, if we're not living in those times, is it administratively and bureaucratically better to have an independent Scotland? Now, I'd, I'd like to return to these, these questions later on, but I think just putting them out there right away um, begins to set a context for a discussion about Scottish independence. I think the next thing we have to think about, and it's uh, true for every country, is... What do the people think about economics and politics? When I studied at Glasgow University, economics graduates got a degree in political economy. And uh, eventually they lobbied the, the university to have an economics degree because the degree was economics and lots of employers didn't know what political economy was. But as so often um, the Scots were right, economics is inherently political. Um, there's a, a political element because um, there's always a question of the involvement of government and money. Classical economics deals with the exchange of goods as if money doesn't matter. Money is introduced quite late in economic explanations. If you study economics, then you understand utility, uh, the theory of the firm, why businesses continue to produce and why they stop, why workers move between um, employers how workers spend their money to maximise their happiness uh, with a basket of goods. So economics uh, deals with the economy as if government weren't present and as if money doesn't matter. And then government and cash money is introduced and that changes things a bit. It doesn't change things in, its in, in their entirety, but it changes them significantly. So political economy is in many ways a better description of what economics addresses than pure economics because there is no pure economics. The whole world is covered in states and therefore you always have to consider the role of government and money and central banks and so on. But do you believe, does anyone believe that politics trumps economics? Or are we all now in the same page and we believe that economics is what the fundamental driver is? Francis Fukuyama, I think in the late 1980s or possibly the 1990s, Fukuyama was an American federal civil servant, I think, before he became an academic. And he published a book called something like The End of Ideology. I should have checked. But it's, um, it's a book similar to lots of others that have been produced, suggesting essentially that um, the great ideological disputes are over. Uh, in the UK, for example, the Labour Party abandoned Clause 4, the commitment to the workers owning the means of production, distribution and exchange um, and the full rewards of their labour uh, being in the hands of the workers. No more expropriation, no more, no more extraction of surplus value. And then people came along and they explained that any society that wants to invest for a greater future product has to give up some present consumption. And that can happen either through taxation and bureaucrats allocating capital, or it can happen through individuals choosing not to consume and investing in enterprises. But one way or the other, someone somewhere has to give up consumption in order to have a greater future product. And the return on investment is very low. If you choose to give up consumption today, then you will get 
on average, a 5.1% return with huge volatility. So if someone posed the question, would you rather have £1,000 today or £1,051 in a year's time, but we can't guarantee that the 1000 will be there, you'll probably get the 51 but your fundamental investment might be worth 800 or 700 or 1200 but we can't be sure. In most circumstances, people choose to take the 1000 We know this because most people won't invest. So, the world essentially has went through a, a vast experiment. We took Germany and split it into two, east and west. We took Korea and split it into two, north and south. We built an iron curtain across Europe and... Uh, put one half under the Soviet planning system and the other half under something approximating the free enterprise system. We've tried time and again to prove that planning works and time and again we've proved the opposite. There's a, an academic at the moment, uh, Masakato, who's arguing that uh, government is far more useful than you'd think and that the narrative I'm giving you right now is false. But I think most people believe that the great questions were settled or it seemed so in the 1990s and therefore economics trumps politics and there's a limited amount the government can do. Capital is mobile. Capital itself does not obtain high rewards. The division of product between the workers and capital and to include in the workers the state because it's the state that serves the workers. The division in product is vastly in favour of the workers. So in a world where Volkswagen can move plant machinery to Slovakia and build a little three-cylinder up car in that world, a state will not be able to grab a huge share of taxation and the workers will get paid wages which are similar to the kind of wages that are obtained for that activity anywhere in the world. It's very hard to make BMW cars in America or Germany and pay higher wages than Malaysia if the Malaysians can make them just as well and the cars can move and the plant machinery can move. In that world, economics trumps politics. Arguably, in every world, economics trumps politics. The remarkable thing about people on the left is that so many of them are committed to the idea that Marx was essentially right, and yet at the same time, they want to believe that politics trumps economics, when, of course, the central message of Marxism is that economics trumps politics. So I think we have to ask ourselves first and foremost, what is um, politics all about? Is it about holes in the road and administration and bureaucracy? Or is it about the great existential questions and who can you trust and who's in your tribe? And most of the time I think it's administrative. And the second question you have to ask yourself is, does politics trump economics or is it the opposite? And I think economics trumps politics. Once those two questions have been answered, I think the presumption is against Scottish nationalism. The presumption is against Scotland being an independent country. But I'll park that for the moment and move on. Because the next part of this, I think, is, is, is particularly difficult for anyone who favours Scottish independence. And that is the question of what is Scotland? And uh, is there a Scotland? Because Scotland is, a, is an unusual country. It's a very clannish country. Malcolm Gladwell um, suggested that culture has an impact across centuries. If you want to explain why people in the American South behave as they do, you have to understand that they are the Scots-Irish and they've got a culture that is remarkably similar to the one that the Irish and the Scots imported into America and continued. He talks about the feuding culture of Harlan, Kentucky and uh, the kind of um, pride and indignation and uh, violence that the Scots-Irish brought to the American South. As he says, if you get murdered um, in the South, probably you know your murderer and probably you both know what caused it. 
So if for the sake of argument culture runs across centuries, if it's the case that the Scots have got a certain kind of way of going on, um, then that might be useful or harmful in trying to establish a, a Scottish, a political Scottish state. And the most obvious thing you can, uh, you can identify if you look at Scotland is the division between the Highlands and the Lowlands. Back in the 1980s, probably 1985, I was in a youth hostel in uh, the Highlands. And uh, it was 84 actually now, I recall. And in 86, I was in Morocco. And it turned out that a group of young lads on this trip in Morocco had been in the youth hostel at the same time. And they were English lads. Now, me and my pals had arrived late in, the, uh, in Fort William and uh, didn't even try to check in the youth hostel because we were too late. Instead, we went and got drunk. And then, once drunk, we decided um, to sleep in the car. But we mentioned this is what we were doing to the barman, who told us that uh, he would phone his friend in the hostel, and, of course, the boys from Glasgow could come and check in. So we did. And we had a wonderful time in the hostel. I discovered in 1986 that the English lads who were there at the same time were treated disgracefully because they were English. So this... Um, division between England and Scotland um, existed in the Highlands in the, in the kind of sentiment that some had. But what that, what that doesn't tell you is the division between the Lowlands and the Highlands has existed for hundreds of years. What a lot of English people in particular, and Americans as well, don't understand is that the Lowlands were fundamentally British. They were at the forefront of the British state um, for a long time. And People like Hume and Ferguson and Smith and Miller, the great thinkers of the Scottish Enlightenment, were very keen to bleach their prose, spoken and written. They wanted to bleach their work of Scotticisms. They were keen to be Northern Britons. The Lowland Scots were fundamentally um, a much more um, commercial and Presbyterian and, um, for want of a better term, and I wish I had a better term, a much more modern people, less agrarian, less clannish, um, and, uh, and more committed to the idea that, uh, that identity was, was tedious and what mattered was efficiency. So we had a situation in Scotland which a lot of people allied over. When the Williamite settlement, um, after the Glorious Revolution, uh, 1688, and then the, 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 the conflict that followed it, when William and Mary became the, the joint monarchs, the joint uh, uh, sovereigns, we had a situation where it looked as if there was going to be a, a threat to the Williamite settlement in 1690, I think, in Scotland. There were two battalions of King's Own Scottish Borderers raised in a morning in Edinburgh to defend the Williamite settlement. The Lowlands are a very, very different place from the Highlands. And within Scotland, there's a, tre a tremendous fracture between the cities and the rural areas, uh, between the islands and the rest, between the Shetlanders and almost everybody else. The Shetlanders have a very distinct identity. So if for the sake of argument you wish to play the patriot game, if you want to claim that we are in a an existential crisis or that there's an existential threat, if you want to claim we live in disordered times as we did in 1939, and therefore we have to look to who we can trust, the trouble is it's not obvious that the Scots can trust each other because the Scots are a very fractured people um, and we always have been, or certainly as far back as we can see. So the, the Scotland that would claim to be the ethnic national basis for a, uh, for a new state is a Scotland where uh, the lowlands 
are covenanters and, uh, and fundamentally on the same page as much of England. And the Highlands are uh, very different in terms of their, their history. Now, you can, you can deny that culture runs across um, centuries. But if you do, then your basis for saying there is a Scotland that has a, a, an identity which is worth recognising and predicating a state on. If you, if you make the claim that there's no identity over time, then all of a sudden your claim for Scottish nationhood, a political Scotland, is entirely a claim about administrative and bureaucratic efficiency. And it's very far from clear, given the experience we've had since 1999 in the devolved Scottish Parliament, it's very far from clear that we really are better at administration and bureaucracy than the Scottish office and uh, the so-called colonial administration of people like Ian Lang and, uh, and others uh, managed. So anyway, as I say, I think these big questions about uh, what is the state, uh, does economics trump politics, uh, and who are the Scots? I think these questions form landmark uh, issues. They, 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 they represent the, the, the large-scale topography of the question. If we look at something much more immediate, uh, what it was that drove the demand for Scottish nationhood in the recent history, the last 30, 40 years, it was Thatcherism um, in the late 70s and early 80s that really drove um, the demand for an independent Scottish state. It was a rejection of the policies that followed the 1970s debacle of the Labour government. It's worth remembering, just as an aside, that the, the Labour government of 1974-79 was brought down by the Scottish National Party. So for any Scottish nationalist who dislikes Thatcher and the Conservative Party and what happened in the 1980s, it's worth remembering that Jim Callaghan's government ended just a little bit earlier than it would otherwise have done because the Scottish National Party um, voted in a vote of confidence to collapse Callaghan's government. But anyway, 1979 arrived, and we had had, um, I think from memory, 26% inflation. We had a top rate of income tax of 83% on income. We'd had a top rate of tax on so-called unearned income from savings of 98%. And we'd had the IMF coming into the country in order to tell us how to run it. We'd had the miners on strike um, in Ted Heath's government just before Labour came in and the lights going out regularly. We then had the winter of discontent at the end of the Labour government, 78-79, and we had the Scots failing to support a devolved parliament. Now, all of this was the context for the 1979 Tory victory and what could only be described as a British Volcker movement Volcker in America smashed inflation out of the American economy by um, adopting a brutal policy without regard to short-term consequences because he thought it was better in the long run. Thatcher did something similar 79-82 and it's foolish to pretend otherwise. The British economy and British society went through merry hell in that period and the Scots thought it could have been avoided. No matter how much money had been spent on subsidising shipyards, no matter how many orders for Royal Fleet Auxiliary and Royal Navy ships were placed with the Clyde when they shouldn't have been placed, no matter how much was done to try and support pulp mills in the Highlands, or Talbot cars in Linwood, or Leyland trucks in Bathgate, no matter what was done, the Scots always felt that more could have been done. And what actually happened was, by in involving the state in the economy and bailing out bankrupt industries, 
we convinced Scotland, we convinced civil Scotland, we convinced the trade unionists that in actual fact there was an alternative, a long-term alternative to making goods and services that were equally valued by the world as the goods and services you consumed. We took product from successful individuals and industries and we subsidised the unsuccessful. And in the very act of doing that, we convinced the unsuccessful that this could continue indefinitely. So we had Jimmy Reid, um, the great trade unionist, telling us um, that uh, a work-in was possible and that a shipyard which was bankrupt could be made to seem a noble endeavour that deserved subsidy by the workers refusing to go on strike but instead working. Now I can remember being powerfully influenced by this. I can remember crying um, with the dignity of that. The, the old Labour claim that the right to work is not a right to not work and that it's important for people to have that identity, to not be deprived of their place in the society, to be able to socialise their kids because their kids see them working. All of that struck me very deep. But the trouble is that it didn't work. Um, and by the time we got to uh, 1979, it was obviously not working. There was never a period where efficiency kicked in. There was never a period where management got better. There was never a period where demarcation disputes between union members began to ease. It was always the case. We were never Austrians. We were never Germans. We were never Norwegians. All of the consensus stuff that seemed to happen in other countries, all of the things that drove Japanese total quality management, the ability to actually get the workers on side and recognise that the world didn't owe you a living and you had to do uh, what was best in world markets, all of the things that transformed Germany and Japan after the war, uh, they weren't done in Scotland. Someone said that the reason why the Germans and Japanese were so successful after 1945 was precisely because they felt that the world owed them nothing. They'd been bombed back to rubble, they'd been bombed back to the Stone Age, and therefore they had nothing left. There was no hubris in them, there was no uh, contempt for other people's demands. They bent to world demands. If the world wanted wiring looms and rusty cars that meant the car always started, then Datsun and Nissan would give you that. Um, if, the, if the world wanted uh, German engineering and BMW cars and the workers getting paid comparatively low wages, then that's what Germany would provide. The Germans would price themselves into jobs. So all of that, um, by 1979, uh, drove Conservative support. And Scotland did not vote Conservative. But the rest of industrial England, a huge part of the working class, saw that Thatcher... If, if Thatcher wasn't right, Callaghan was definitely wrong. That was the position the people had been brought to in 1979. They didn't know that Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman and Margaret Thatcher and Keith Joseph and even Enoch Powell, in the, to the extent that he defended their economics, they didn't know that these people were right, but they knew that Callaghan was wrong. It, they knew that what Labour was doing wasn't working. But in Scotland, there was always that belief that uh, these things are choices. That Kailyard economics, that tanky belief, we call them tankies in Glasgow. The guys who supported the Soviets even after Hungary and Czechoslovakia in 56 and 68. The guys who'd been to the Soviet Union and seen the Potemkin villages, who'd been given wonderful lambskin, astrakhan hats by fellow trade unionists, who drank 60% vodka with their fellow workers and recognised that working men have no country. These guys continued to believe that everything that was done in the 1970s, uh, 79, 82 in particular, everything that was done was voluntary and Thatcher chose to destroy working men and of course finally destroyed the miners. Now all of that, as I say, um, is bedrock belief. 
And the fathers and uncles who went through that, and now, of course, the grandfathers, they've handed that on to their kids and grandkids. Scottish nationalism rests in the belief that what was done after 1979 was voluntary. And a lot of families were smashed because Margaret Thatcher had a, a deep-seated antipathy to ordinary people, particularly Scottish people. Now, I would suggest that's a falsehood. Having lived through the 1970s, I would suggest that by 1979, we had recognised what didn't work, and there wasn't a whole lot of doubt about it. But of course, most people don't remember 1979 very clearly. Um, so, as I say, just to recap, I think that um, we need to ask ourselves what kind of politics we want. Is it the politics of existential threat or is it the politics of administration and bureaucracy? We have to ask ourselves whether we believe things that we can defend about economics. We have to ask ourselves who we are. Who are the Scots? And do we trust each other? Do we have the kind of identity, uh, class identity and geographical identity, such that we'll be better people in our own state than we are currently in the, in the United Kingdom? Because the Galavidians, the Dumfries and Galloway uh, folk that I most closely identify with, and you can hear my accent, those Galavidians seem to me to be very different folk from uh, those in the Highlands and Islands. And we might discover that um, rather too late. So we might want to contemplate it in advance. One of the things that's not often seen is the extent to which devolution and the demand for independence is essentially a, a hammer for people who, who don't recognise that their problem isn't what they imagine. Or I put that differently. In 1979, the Conservative Party won the election, and then again in 83, and in 87, and in 1992. And Scots increasingly did not support the Conservatives. Now, we have a party system in the UK, and we've got a parliament in the UK, which is elected through what's called, accurately, the single-member simple plurality system. And what that does is, it gives governments significant majorities on very small numbers of votes, 24 votes in 100 will give a government uh, a majority. If you look at uh, 2005, I think Labour got 36% of the vote, but a comfortable working majority of around about 65 seats from memory. So this is an electoral system which is a complete disaster. And what it does is it gives the leadership of the party in government tremendous control over the ordinary MPs. So not only do you have a situation where a small number of votes will give a government a parliamentary majority, but that parliamentary majority are completely and utterly docile and do nothing to challenge the leadership. So if you have a Margaret Thatcher, if you get somebody who obtains three votes in ten, 43% of the, the vote uh, with 70% turnout, that person can have complete and utter autocratic control of both their cabinet and the parliament. And policies, therefore will be not only um, decided by them, but the pace of implementation will be decided by them, with very little in the way of, uh, of structured dissent. Now, back in 1978-79, the Scots rejected the devolved parliament. They voted for it, but not in any great numbers, and therefore it wasn't implemented, the so-called Cunningham Amendment. In 1997, we supported the new uh, offering from Labour, and we had the Holyrood Parliament. Very few reasonable Scots who are not politically committed, those who are not SNP supporters, ordinary Scots look at what's happened since 1999, 
particularly what's happened in education, but also what's happened more generally. And it would be very hard to claim that we're better governed now than we were. What we needed in 1997 was a new electoral system. We needed to have centrist politics, the kind that is far to the left of where I am. The reason why we have a Thatcher government uh, in 79 and the reason why Major scraped home in 1992 is because of the electoral system. If we'd had a system which I can accept as being better and fairer, it would have resulted in politics, which I am less keen, of, keen on. I am way to the right of where the rest of the country is, and I'm honest enough to admit it. There should not be the kind of politics in this country that's favoured by people like me. It should be to the left of where I am. If we had the single transferable vote system of election, which people always refer to as proportional representation, it isn't proportional representation, it is personal representation. By wrecking the disciplinary matrix that exists under first-past-the-post, by making individual MPs accountable to particular groups of electors, by making them compete against one another in the same party for support, by doing all of that, you break the link between the party hierarchy and the individual representative. It then becomes possible for people to walk away from the party and still be elected. Now, if we'd brought in that electoral system in 1979 uh, or in 1997 or any period in between, we would not be where we are with Scottish independence. The Scots rejected Thatcherism. The Scots were not particularly enthusiastic about the Blair government, as we found out in 2001, when the ordinary working class Scot refused to vote for the uh, new Labour project. And the rise of the Scottish National Party after that is entirely a consequence of working class Scots deserting the Labour movement and then discovering through experimentation that it was possible to vote for the SNP in Horwood elections and for that vote to tell, for the SNP to win, to become a minority administration in 2007. So, if we brought in an electoral system which would solve our problems, we wouldn't need a non-solution to those same problems. Hollywood represents a non-solution. And there's very little that can be done about it. There's very little that can be done to persuade ordinary Scots because electoral systems are boring. The detail is boring. Um, so, we, we end up um, championing the cause of Scottish independence when in actual fact... Um, we need a, a British politics which is closer to the ideological commitments of most Scots and indeed a large slice of the, uh, the rest of the UK's population. It, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous sadness that we as a people um, are prepared to continue down a, a cul-de-sac when the solution to our ails is, is obvious. I mean, I'm thinking about the Electoral Reform Society. The Electoral Reform Society have been trying since the late 19th century to persuade um, the British people that we have a bad electoral system and an easy solution is available. And they've failed. This podcast is not going to change that. It's probably not going to change it for you. It certainly won't change it for the bulk of the population. So it's very hard to know what to do because um, it's a bit like being the Hungarian scientist who discovered that chloride of lime stops um, women dying in childbirth if the doctors wash their hands. They continued for, I think, 10 or 15 years killing women after the results were in. There was nothing it seems to be it seems could be done. Um, reason plays a very small part in human affairs, and people find politics boring. So if you try to convince someone that independence, for example, isn't a solution to their problems, but in an actual fact they need uh, a new electoral system in their country, 
um, it might well not be possible. And it might well be the case that um, the disaster has to happen. The train has to crash. So, as I say, we went through the 70s and we ended up with a, a Hollywood parliament that the SNP has controlled since 2007. And all of that was a consequence of a politics that was rejected by the Scots. But the solution to that politics was other than the Blair offering. And none of us had the sense to see that Blair was offering uh, what turned out to be a Trojan horse towards a, a, an independent Scotland. Nobody saw that by moving the Labour Party to the centre, by taking the working class for granted, by assuming that people in Blanau, Gwent, in Wales or in Scotland would have nobody to vote for, and therefore the Labour Party would keep those seats regardless of the collapse in support, all of that meant that by 2007, Scotland was ripe for a sudden SNP victory that nobody had expected. And it happened. And now in 2020, we've had an SNP administration uh, for 13 years, which has done a terribly bad job bureaucratically and administratively, but has managed to entrench itself as the expression of the settled will of the Scottish people. So it seems to me, as I say, um, we've, uh, we've backed ourselves into some kind of corner and I don't know how to get out of it. I'd, I'd like to conclude just by saying a few things about where we are politically as we head into the 2021 election. We've still got ourselves... Um, into a, a, a politics where the basic facts are disputed. So the GERS figures, the figures which are produced by the Scottish National Party, the Government Expenditure and Revenue Scotland figures, which are not doubted by any responsible nationalist. None of the Scottish National Party's leadership doubt the figures, whereas a huge slice of the support doubt the figures. Now this is truly remarkable. You would think that um, we would not commit ourselves to believing that Nicola Sturgeon and Kate Forbes and the other leading nationalists are part of a unionist conspiracy. But that's what's implied in the attitude that a lot of people have to the gas figures. They seem to want to believe that their own leadership is, um, you know, engaged in, to use Nicola Sturgeon's phrase, running Scotland down. So we've got a very, very strange attitude towards these basic facts. Um, we have Something like, I think, 56 Scottish nationalist MPs were sent to Westminster in 2015. It was 56, I'm pretty sure. Every single one of them, from what I can tell, what I can determine, doesn't understand the basics of Scotland's finances. They fought hard for so-called full fiscal autonomy for Scotland. And it was only after three days that it became obvious that they didn't understand the first thing about Scotland's finances. They thought that Scotland's fiscal deficit was half of what it actually was. Now, this is, this is remarkable. Um, those who have to go on the record um, don't dispute the basics of Scotland's finances. But much of the rest of the time, the politics proceeds on the basis of falsehood. And it's, um, it's, it's almost like a, a Lewis Carroll politics. It's, it's Nicola uh, in Wonderland. It's, it's the strangest uh, experience. It's discombobulating. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I, uh, I've got basic sense plus first-year economics and, uh, and an honours paper in government and economy to my name. And I look at Scotland and the way we conduct our politics, and I'm not entirely certain that I haven't lost my mind. Uh, some days, particularly during lockdown when I've nobody else to speak to, I pinch myself because I wonder whether, in actual fact, I'm dreaming it. 
But we don't seem to understand the basic facts of our finances. And we head into the 2021 election with the SNP still continuing to talk about Scottish independence as if it were a, a viable project. When the numbers are so heavily against us, it's hard to know how the project, the Scottish Nationalist project, is consistent with any concern whatsoever for the life and welfare of ordinary Scots. So um, we are where we are. And uh, I've probably spoken for too long, um, but uh, I hope, I hope that by May 2021, we can at least agree on the basic facts. Once we've agreed on the facts, we can decide whether an independent Scotland is the kind of thing we're prepared to die in a ditch over. We can decide whether we think we are a people who can trust one another in that politics or whether we'll be riven with disagreement um, in a way that we uh, despise in the UK. We think the UK is a fractured society. We have to ask ourselves whether we would be an equally fractured society as an independent Scotland. We can ask ourselves whether we think the state is mainly about bureaucratic and administrative affairs or whether it's about great issues of identity. We can ask ourselves whether we could perhaps lobby for a new kind of Britain, a new kind of United Kingdom. Would we be prepared to contemplate a different constitutional settlement which would resolve the problems that we thought we saw in the post-1979 Scotland. 1979 was a watershed in Scottish politics. Nothing has been quite the same since. And that watershed, that sudden cataclysmic closure of the heavy industry in which large parts of Scotland depended, um, has left a legacy, both in terms of economics, but also in terms of um, cultural belief, the things that people pass on to their kids and grandkids. So if we could just agree on the fundamental facts of our existence, we could reach a decision that we could all sign up for regarding the kind of constitutional change that we need. I think, I think, and more importantly, I hope that if we could agree on those facts, we could agree that the British Constitution does indeed have to change. But the one thing we don't need as a medicine to cure the disease that we have. The one thing we don't need is Scottish independence.